Welcome to the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle, episode 57 today, as I take you through a variety of subjects on this podcast. Today's guest is Azmir Begovic, the goalkeeper for Bournemouth and Bosnia. Now, I went down to Bournemouth in late March, had a fish and chips date with Azmir Begovic at the Harry Ramsden's Fish and Chip Shop right on the beach down in Bournemouth. And it was originally a video project for Give Me Sport. You can watch the video on the Facebook channel of Give Me Sport or also on YouTube. You can also find the details on my Twitter at Max underscore Whittle. And the reason I wanted to release this as a full podcast was... First of all, you probably know if you follow Begovic's career, he is a huge American sports fan and we do discuss that at the end of this show, but he has a fascinating story to tell. He's a refugee and has been since a very early age. He left Bosnia when he was just four years old, the Yugoslavian war, at a critical stage when Azmir left for Germany and then went on to Canada, but he now represents Bosnia at an international level. It's a beautiful story and what's more beautiful is that Azmir had his fish and chips in front of him and mostly stuck to the mushy peas, which is what a professional footballer should do. Eddie Howe, his manager, will be very proud when he sees that and when he hears it too. But the film was 17 minutes, so I cut out a fair chunk of it. I wanted to release it in full here so you can hear the entire story with Begovic. So coming up on the podcast this week, Azmir Begovic, goalkeeper for Bournemouth and Bosnia. Azmir Begovic, I've always wanted to sit beach view in Bournemouth with a Premier League footballer about to share fish and chips. Yeah. This is the dream come true for me. Absolutely. Yeah, for, well, for myself <laughs> also. It doesn't get better than this. So uh, we're in a nice place, some good food and um, enjoying the traditional meal down here in Bournemouth. How long has it been since you had fish and chips? Uh, do you know what? It's, I have, since I've been in Bournemouth, I've, I haven't had fish and chips. Um, really? Fish and chips I've probably had maybe about a year ago. So mm-hmm. not on my hit list too often. What's Eddie Howe going to say when he finds out you've had plate full of chips yeah um, to be honest we had a a good session today so um, I (laughs) think I deserve it after the work we put in so what's the thing you will most likely to come to during the summer whether it's food or drink is there something that you apart from fish and chips of course go for Uh, to be honest I I don't succumb to anything Um, I I try and generally have a pretty moderate diet you know everything in moderation and um, that's my motto so in the summer it doesn't change too much Um, I won't succumb to alcohol or and it treats too much because I think it's easier when you're, when you're playing, obviously you're working off every day and I think when you're not training on a daily basis it's, it's, it's harder to work off so um, I, I just stick with, with what I know and try to keep it as, as healthy as possible most of the time. There's a fascinating symmetry between you and Bournemouth because when you were at Portsmouth over 10 years ago you came here on loan and Eddie Howard just retired yeah. so he was a reserves coach under Kevin Bond, do you remember what he was like? Yeah, I mean, I, I've known Eddie for a long time. Um, even when I first came to England at Portsmouth, he was, um, he was here. He was, he was there, actually, at the time as a player. Um, then, obviously, when I came here on loan, he was here as well. So we've kind of followed each other for many years. And you know what? I, I spoke to him then uh, when he was a first-team coach and, make, you know, obviously making his way through coaching and the, and the ranks. And he was always a very switched-on guy then, um, had a huge passion for the game. And, you know, it's progressed obviously incredibly well for him over the last few years. But he was a defender. If you'd have come a year earlier, you could have barked at him. I know. <laughs> you ever think about that? I know. I, I, I did bark at him once. My first ever reserve game in England for Pompey was with Eddie. I think right. he was just coming back from an injury and I barked at him then. He probably doesn't remember, but I, I remember it clearly, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was um, maybe a year a little bit too late and I could have, uh, could have had a go at him a few times. What did you say to him? Can you remember? I don't, I don't remember speaking to anyone, to be honest. I, I 
when I first came, I was I was young. I don't remember speaking too much at all. Obviously, our conversation started a little bit when I came with my loan spell here, and you know, he was just um, there to for whatever you needed him to, and he was talking to me about different aspects of the game and how I can improve then. And you know, he's very much um, has, has coaching in his blood. What he's done for the club as well. They were relegated down to League Two just after you left. They were in debt of four million. The club nearly closed, basically, and what he did to get them back into the Premier League, they also had a 17-point deduction. That's right. When you're there a weekend now, they're in the Premier League, can you sense what the fans are thinking? Where, like, how are we here? What have we, how have we achieved this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's difficult to say. I think generally the fans, I'm sure they're, they're grateful for where we are, where the club is, is gone, and the level that we're playing on now, for sure. But um, I think as a player, it's difficult to sense that, um, unless you... There's really not many fans closely, but I think obviously the incredible journey this club has been on. Um, I said on the brink of extinction and to come back and play at the highest level of, of the game is, is, is incredible. Um, everyone played their part from, from the manager, from the people behind the scenes, from the fans who have contributed to this journey. Is, um, it's obviously been incredible. And I think the main thing is um, what that journey has done is kept everyone grounded. Yeah. You know, we, we don't take anything for granted. This club doesn't take anything for granted because you know what the tough times are like. So. I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's just a great story all around and, and a great environment to be, to be a part of. Your life is fascinating. Your father was a goalkeeper himself. Leotar in the Yugoslavian That's League. Right. So is it fair to say your footballing hero is in the family? Yeah, I think obviously my first hero would be, would be my father. Um, it was natural for me to follow in his footsteps. You know, from the age of four or five, I, I didn't want to do anything else. It was no questions asked. I became a goalkeeper. And, it just felt very natural. Um, nobody pressured me to do it. Nobody told me to do it. Just something that I wanted to do, and I and I carried on with it. And it was just amazing, really. And I obviously wanted to follow his footsteps. You know, when we moved to Germany because of the war, he played obviously semi-professional uh, levels in Germany. And all I would do is follow him. I was on the bus with the team. I was uh, like a little mascot. You know, even though they said no kids allowed, it you couldn't get rid of me. So I was always there. And he was my first hero. He was my he was my coach and someone I aspired to be, of course. And Obviously, as, as I got a little bit older, you got some professional idols too. You know, I was a Bayern Munich fan growing up, and Oliver Kahn was of one of my heroes, someone I followed and aspired to be as well. On that bus, you weren't allowed, but you were there. That's right. How did you wrangle that? Yeah, I mean, I, I just went with my dad. I was, no, I was like, listen, I'm coming with you. I was like holding on. and I used to, uh, before matches, like clean his boots and polish his boots and everything. And I was just there. I was like, I'm coming, whether you like it or not. And then and that was the same attitude for the, for the other players and everyone. I was like, oh, listen, I'm going to sit here. And then I didn't even have a seat on the bus. I was sitting on like the steps, you know, where the toilets are. Right. So I was oh, sitting nice. there, yeah. I eventually made my way forward to the front of the bus, but I was sitting on the stairs there. But I. Uh, you drove the bus eventually. <laughs> eight year old driving the bus, but I was just wanted to be part of it. I was, I was football mad and couldn't get enough of being around that sort of environment. So, how hard did he coach you then? Yeah, um, tough, um, you know, in terms of we're doing the technical work, that, that was always very important. We worked a lot on the field and yeah, he worked me tough, I think, when, when it needed to be. Um, he worked me tough physically, um, even if it wasn't on the field, you know, take me running in the, in, the, in the forest, take me running in the snow in Canada and there was, there was some tough times, but I think I wouldn't change that for the world because when I did come to an environment or a place where I needed to perform, whether that was regional teams, select teams, um, national teams at that young age, then I was able to do my job, perform, and outperform everyone else. So in that sense then, you've really been in the dressing room your whole life from when you were following your dad up till now. Yeah. What's the craziest thing you've seen in a dressing room? Yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, I think I've seen, I've seen a lot of things in the dressing room. <laughs> um, 
you know, some stuff that's not worth repeating. Um, that's for sure. I think the, the main stuff I've seen is obviously a lot of joy, you know, whether that was watching my dad and his team get promoted from a local league to another local league and everyone celebrating, whether it's um, winning some important games over, over my career, winning the title with Chelsea. There's a lot of good things I've seen, and I think those are the things that I, I like to remember more than anything else. Who has the biggest OCD that you've played with in terms of preparation? or uh, um, Yeah, OCD probably um, John Terry. Yeah? Yeah, he's, he's very OCD. He's... I think he wears a new pair of boots every game. Uh, whether that's still the case now, um, his tape has to be immaculate and and, and painted of the color of, of, of the socks. And he's very particular. Um, you know, Branislav Savanovic was the same. Had some very you know big superstitions. So yeah, some guys are very much into every little detail. What about you? Anything? Um, I have more of a routine to be yeah. honest. I I grew. I never really had superstitions. I have more of a routine when it comes to match day, the day before, what I like to do, maybe the things I like to eat uh, that work well for me and. That's more more a case of a routine that doesn't have to be as, as strict as superstitions, you know, because if, if something doesn't go quite right, then maybe you don't play as well. So I never really got into the whole superstition thing. John Terry has the money to wear different boots every week, so we're not going to feel bad for him. Yeah, now. yeah um, his sponsors must be, must be devil. <laughs> They're very happy. So it's incredible, really, when you look at your life, the fact that you are a refugee makes it more inspiring. You leave war-torn Yugoslavia when you're four. You live in Germany till you're 10. Right. You move to Canada. Now you're on the south coast of England. That's right. All of that in perspective now, and you think back, how did people treat you and your parents when you moved around? Listen, I think life has been difficult for, for myself and my parents. Um, nothing is, you know, as the saying goes, everything's been earned, nothing's been given. Um, you know, we were lucky that when, when times became tough in Bosnia that we were given an opportunity to go to Germany, but you are a refugee, you know, you don't get anything given. You know, my, my parents work in factories and mm -hmm. uh, working two or three jobs to make ends meet and give myself and my brothers um, the best possible platform. It was difficult and, you know, even then, um, because of certain government rule changes and, and, and laws being changed, you get moved from Germany to Canada once again. and. You're a refugee one, another time, and that, that was obviously more difficult because I remember those times. I was um, 10, 11 years old, and obviously those are still fresh in my memory. And again, you have to earn your way up. And my mother retrains re herself, re-studies to be a nurse, and my father also did work a couple jobs, you know. So, you know, we were lucky that our parents have had a great work ethic, and I think that work ethic transferred uh, to myself, and I said I wouldn't change mm. that sort of a background for anything, really. How did you get from Yugoslavia to Germany? Uh, by car, mm. yeah. Um, Took a while. Uh, yeah, I mean, we tried a couple of different other places, Sweden, Turkey, it uh, wasn't available, but obviously we just packed up a car. Mm. Had a baby brother at the time, uh, packed up the car with as much as we could and, and off we went. So tens of thousands of people lose their lives. There's huge displacement, but some of your family members actually remained in Bosnia. Yeah. Did, did they ever, who stayed and did they ever tell you what it was like to be there first? Yeah, time? Um, I mean, that was difficult for the whole family because we, we split off. Um, obviously, my, my family and I went to Germany, a couple other family members went to Germany, some, some others went to Holland and Norway. And yeah, one of my aunts and my two cousins stayed, stayed throughout the whole war. Um, wow. And um, yeah, those were not pretty times, you know, probably not times that we would wish on anyone. Um, they stayed due to circumstances and thankfully they survived, you know, it was obviously some, some close calls and see bullets flying everywhere or people shooting each other over the hills and you know it's obviously uh, not a pretty picture and you've already talked about going back in 2008 for the first time yeah if you could describe what it looked like then and have you been back since and has it has it improved at all yeah i've been back to my hometown only the once since mm. since i left uh, the war it's obviously a different area now um 
it's not the same city that it used to be, not, not the same people there that it used to be. So now I think it's, it's difficult to, to go back and, and maybe, obviously I go back right, regularly to Bosnia with the national team, but that first time was, was tough. I didn't know, don't remember much from my childhood there. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're four, you don't have those memories. And um, it's, it's a beautiful country. It has amazing scenery, some, some great climate too. And I think some very good down earth people and values, but obviously the, the politics and things have gotten in the way very much. And that has changed some of the um, outlook in, in different cities and especially my hometown. What do you say to your parents now? What would you say to them, given that you know now what, what they went through to make sure you were all okay? Yeah, well, there, there isn't much you can, you can say. Listen, um, the, the situation speaks for itself. I obviously am very grateful for what they did and um, the sacrifices they made to give myself and my brothers the best possible opportunities, of course. And as a parent, it makes you realize a little bit, a little bit more and I think the, the magnitude of the things they had to do and the responsibility they had. So, of course, I have a lot of appreciation for them and what they did and tried to pay them back and, <laughs> and, uh, and over time. But, you know, um, you know, ultimately, it's obviously gratitude and, and thanking them for what they've done. So that stop in Canada, did sports then become your sanctuary almost? Well, uh, sports is, I mean, I was a sports, I was born a sports yeah. nut. I, even when I was growing up in Germany, I was playing tennis, table tennis, volleyball, different sports other than football. And, and that, that probably grew in Canada in my teenage years because I got involved in playing different sports and uh, watching different sports and getting, getting I guess, acquired to the, the, uh, the American sports market and, and American sports. But I've been at since since birth, so I've got a great knowledge and a great passion for many different different sports for hockey? sure. Hockey? Yeah, I mean, place? ice hockey without it, without question. You want yeah. you didn't want to stay away from that. It looks no. Pretty cool. I. You know what? It was funny because, um, you know, ice hockey is like a religion in, in Canada. Yeah. It's like, you know, probably the equivalent of football in England here, and number one sport without a doubt. And you are born to play ice hockey, and that's <laughs> why they're the best in the world. And mm-hmm. you know, I was I was at a couple of teammates who were playing soccer with me at the time, and said oh you should, you should come and try try ice hockey and give it a go and and my parents said no way like really? no way and it's too physical and mm-hmm. I had friends that you know early teenage years having concussions multiple concussions and it's a tough sport it's not for everyone you know I played it for fun we got to play pickup hockey on, on the local rinks for sure and played some shinny out on, on the lakes but shinny you know, yeah What's but shinny? it's just pickup games out on right. open water so frozen frozen lakes and two goals out there and they call it shitty so were you a goaltender or given your position um, now? yeah I mean I, I put the pads on from time to time and I played a bit of goal um, I actually prefer to be a defenseman to be honest mm-hmm. I, I, I like that I like blocking shots and things like that I, I didn't get the pads the full full gear on too many times but when I did it was fun and I used to play with some friends but I was more of a defenseman than a goalie that's um, which might, might be odd for some people did you ever encounter a bear in Canada? I did, yeah. Okay, tell me the story. So we, um, uh, one of the beauty of, of Canada, some of the national geographics um, and the places and, um, and locations were beautiful. We had um, a national park in Jasper and Banff. And yeah, I mean, I didn't encounter them too close, but as you're driving into, into Jasper and into the forest, um, yeah, you see bears on the side just, just chilling out and, and eating and doing their thing. And you stop by and you look at them, take pictures, but you know, I wouldn't get too close. I'd, I definitely <laughs> kept a healthy distance. Going to make a smooth segue as we're talking about Canada. I'm just trying to clarify facts. Yeah. Are you a Justin Bieber fan? Uh, do you know what? I don't mind Justin Bieber. Um, <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it. I mean, I, uh, I went to see him uh, at a gig. Had a picture taken with him. Oh, you did? You behind yeah. the scenes? Yeah, I was behind the scenes. Um, it wasn't that glamorous, to be fair. It was just literally, <laughs> literally a picture. 
Um, but yeah, I watched him. I don't, I, you know, I think he's a talented boy. I don't, you know, I didn't. I watched his movie, Mr. Believer, or something. <laughs> oh, he nice. made a documentary on his travels, and you know, I was quite impressed. But he sing, he dance, played instruments. You know, obviously, he's multi, multi talented. So uh, I am a fan. I'm not a huge, huge diehard believer, but uh, I, I, I don't mind him at all. Did he have any words? Love your work, Casimir. You know? <laughs> no, no, I don't know if he knew who I was. To be honest, no, I, <laughs> I don't know, but. Um, nothing, it was short and sweet, just a picture and that was it really. You know I typed Believer and I was doing the questions into the Word document and it doesn't autocorrect you, it, <laughs> that's a word now. That's, so a, that's how big the guy is, you, big know, you, have to, you have to respect him for that. Um, yeah. He's built himself and his brand and, and fair enough. So you represent Canada at junior level a couple of times, that's right. you're on the bench for senior qualifiers but you don't get on which is important in the grand scheme of things because mm. you choose Bosnia. Yeah. Take me back to that first day you made your first cap. For Bosnia, how did you feel? Where were you? Did you have people around you? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, take you back. I mean, obviously, like you said, I was, I, I was, I grew up in Canada. Um, mm. You know, from the age of 10 to 16, I, I played for the youth national teams all the way throughout under 15s to under 20s. And um, yeah, I was, I was never capped. Obviously, I was committed to Canada, never capped. I, I knew in the back of my mind that Bosnia was always a possibility, but you never know if that call is ever going to come or, or not. And um, you know, obviously, when the call came, I was I was eligible to, to make the switch, and uh, that's 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 what I did. I always thought it was the best footballing decision um, in terms of possibilities. I thought it was the best decision for my family to represent my family and everyone that was born. I was born in Bosnia. Everyone that was there and have them be at my games and everything else. So, from a family point, I think it was the right decision, and so that I feel like it was the right decision all around. And my first call up came from um, our coach Chiro Blazovic. Um, famous Croatian coach who took the, um, the Croatian team to third place in 98 and you know he just he called me up and uh, our first game was in Armenia away and then Turkey at home and you know I, I was funny I was just breaking a little bit into, into the Portsmouth team and um, played a couple of games and I was maybe going there expecting to play and you know I didn't play he was uh, he played a lot in front of me who was actually unattached didn't have a club so that was a bit surprising but at the same time I think it was just a different different experience maybe it was better that I was kind of transitioned in a little bit slower because it's a different culture different way of working um, it's a free-for-all you know it wasn't the same regulations here as here in England and it was definitely a culture shock from that point of view and you know I remember those days I, I remember being part of the team I think it was a, it was a great honor to be part of that team and obviously I've grown with the national team in, in many years since is there something or someone that you think of when you put on the Bosnian shirt um, I don't think anyone in particular. I think it's a collective thing. Um, I think I take a huge pride in, in wearing that in the national shirt. I think it represents myself, my family, and everyone that's that's been there. Um, I think of the past. I, uh, I take it as motivation to, to to show off Bosnia, to put Bosnia in the map and in, in a greater light. I know many people have been through a, a difficult, difficult past, and I think obviously it's it's a chance to represent our people. Um, you know, times are obviously improving in Bosnia, but at a very slow rate. So I think diff life can still be difficult for most people. So it's a chance for us to, to make them proud and obviously put some joy in their face as well. Is it true your grandma can't watch live games? Yeah, my all the women in my family, my, my <laughs> grandma, my mom, uh, my, my aunt, my mother-in-law, everyone. Um, they, they, they don't like watching football games live. But they, but they do. have you involved, right? Yeah, just it's just they, they have to take, you know, calming tablets and stuff, you know, so they... <laughs> They're not huge fans of watching them live. They'll watch it on TV. Um, they will come to some live games. My grandmother's obviously 85 now, so she mm. she's best away from there. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they they um, it's an emotional roller coaster when I play a game. I can see that you are yeah. a goalkeeper. After That's all. right. Yeah. 
the fascinating thing about that World Cup squad in Brazil was the only person on that entire team that grew up in Bosnia was Edin Dzeko. Do you remember having a conversation with him or another member of the team? Because if you think about it, all these different players and people and stories, loads of different languages in the squad as well. You're in Brazil for this tournament. It's huge for yourself personally. Do you remember a conversation you had with Dzeko or someone else about their upbringing? Um, I remember a few conversations, obviously a couple of words with Edin and, you know, it's difficult not to ask to say, hey, what was it like in the war here? And, um, you know, he shared some stories, of course, um, that were difficult, but at the same time, I think made him stronger, made his family stronger. And that's the sort of character he is. I think generally our our whole team goal and vibe was was that we came together for a reason. You know, like I said, I grew up all over the world and many other players did. And we came for one reason, that's to represent our country and and qualify for a major tournament. and to be honest, that was one of the best groups I, ever, I was ever a part of. Um, yeah. The camaraderie, the togetherness, the spirit. I think that's what made us qualify. It wasn't, we were in a couple of difficult situations, specifically towards the, the back end of qualifying. And, you know, that you don't, you don't get through those situations without character and the right, um, right spirit. And we certainly had an abundance. You know, obviously we had a bit of talent on top, which, was, which obviously made it even better. And that's what helped us get to Brazil. So it was one common goal and everyone coming together to achieve that. So playing Argentina in the Maracanã at a World Cup, was that your best moment in football? Oh, without, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I've, had, I've been very lucky to have a good career so far and some amazing moments, but I think that was, that was the number one moment. You couldn't have scripted that, that moment any better. You know, it's, um, it's a moment that, that I'll never forget. You know, not only getting to a major tournament, having it in... In Brazil, which is the home of football, in a way you can say that um, it's such an iconic stadium. The first ever game since it was renovated, you know, to play in the World Cup and the opening game against Argentina against the powerhouse in our sport um, was incredible. And yeah, that's that's. I was lucky to have my whole family there and everyone. So I'll never forget that moment. Before all of this, you had to come here and have a trial for Portsmouth 03, I believe. That's right. So you're in Canada and you fly over. Did your dad come with you? Did anyone, were you on your own? Well, I was all on my own, yeah. Wow. All on my own, my dad, agent, nobody nobody came. They just chucked me in a flight and <laughs> there you go. I was supposed to spend a month here in the UK. I had two weeks booked at Portsmouth and uh, two weeks booked at Tottenham. Um, and um, yeah, I was excited. You know, that's that's what I had dreamt for for many years. And you know, literally within a couple of days, everything worked out incredibly well at Portsmouth. I played a game and a trial, a trial game, and they they signed me on the spot. So I was like, okay, then uh, here we go. What did they have you do in the trial? No, it was I. I, I came with the academy. I trained with them. I trained with them one day. Um, I think on the second day, I, I played a game right away. It was a friendly, and uh, and I did really well. And I was literally after that game. I was pulled into um, into a change room by the academy director and the academy coach, and said, "Listen, I um, we'd like to offer you a contract, and but there's one one condition: you can't go to Tottenham." Because funny enough, when I came, uh-huh. I I knew I was two weeks at Portsmouth, two weeks at Tottenham, but I didn't know exactly the dates. And I'm a bit of a control freak, so I need to know my times. <laughs> so I was, I was saying to um, the academy director, pick me up from the airport, which is now David Hurst, and I still speak to him now. He's been an incredible gentleman, mm. and I said to him, "Dave, what?" When am I going to Tottenham? What day is it? You know, he said, "What do you mean you're going to Tottenham?" Well, I said, uh, "I'm two weeks. I'm two weeks here and two weeks there." So I just kind of wanted to check, so I got my days right. I was like, "Oh, I don't know anything about that. Let me get back to you on that." And it's like, "Oh, sorry about that." So I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have asked that question. And like I said, funny enough, worked out in a couple of days. I said, "You know what? We'll give you a contract, but you uh, you can't go anywhere else." And I was like, "Fair enough." I was I was happy to be there and and um, worked out really well. Did you ever meet the guy who I think is called John Portsmouth Football Club? Mm. Did you meet him before? Yeah, the, the, the bell. bell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've met him <laughs> uh, just briefly at a couple of games. Uh, yeah. Incredible, the man. It's a journey 
the journeys he makes to go to every game and the effort is incredible. But to be honest, that town is incredible. They love their football, they love their team, and um, it, yeah, it was a great, great time in my career. Because now that you've played on the south coast a few times and you've played for Chelsea, yeah. is there something different about a team on the coast? Is there anything in that? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say different. Everyone has its own different environment, different expectations. Mm. I think. Yeah, I mean the quality of life is nice down here for sure when you're by the beach and. Um, it's not bad in Chelsea yeah. either. And then, like <laughs> I said, you, you you're in Chelsea, you're in you're in central London, and mm. it's an amazing place to be. So I think every every team has its own environment and and um, their own way. You're eyeing something. I am eyeing something. Yeah, this looks. Uh... <laughs> Did you order this? Yeah. Thank you very much. No. Looks great. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. That's a whopper. <laughs> this is a classic one, huh? Mushy peas as well. Hey, mushy peas. I like mushy peas. So how you know? You, as you said, you hadn't ha you've hadn't had this in a while. Is there anything in the Bournemouth kitchen that you eat that is vaguely unhealthy? Um, training. No, 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 no. We um, we very good diet, very yeah. good, uh, very good chef. So we eat uh, eat really well. We have the odds. Uh, rice pudding or apple crumble. Okay. Um, bit of sugar. If, yeah, exactly. But that gets burned out pretty quick. Or if someone has a birthday, they uh, they tend to bring in some cakes, and that's about as far as it goes, really. Okay. Juan Luigi Buffon once said on goalkeepers, "You yeah. score goals as a kid, then you grow up stupid and become a goalkeeper." Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I um, I can see his point. I can see his point. I think. Many goalkeepers are converted. You know, many guys start off um, at the beginning of their football career and said, "I want to be a goalkeeper or a defender." Even so, they 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 go and try and have the glory, and then later on, they realize, "Okay, maybe I'll do something else because I'm maybe not good enough to be in that position." But like I said, for myself, it was it was never anything, any doubt in my mind. I wanted to be a goalkeeper. Never played outfield. Thank you. Never had the interest of playing outfield, and that's all I wanted to be. And um, that's how it's worked out. Thankfully. Catch up. Um, yeah, I'll have some catch up in a minute. Go for it. Do you, uh, as well, NFL kickers, and I know you're into your American football. Yeah, they're classed as a little bit weird. Is it the same Why for is that? goalkeepers? Why is that? Well, the Johnny Heckers of the world, they have a different personality to the. Is outfield that because they're a bit though. more switched on? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. There's, there's see, your answer. See that? I like how you're thinking. Yeah. So they're not weird. They're different. I always hear goalkeepers say we think differently about the game. That's right. But how yeah. do you think differently about the game? Well, listen, we're we are a different different breed. We have to take responsibility of the whole game the whole team and what's what's in front of us and you know nobody else on the pitch lives by the pressure that we do you know one mistake and it's in the goal whereas most other players can make a mistake and have a chance to get away with it so we uh, we have a different pressure we have to look at the game differently um, you know our game especially you know, maybe on a game day sometimes isn't the most physical output or during the week it is more physical than the alpha players mm. but uh, on a game day we are so mentally you know, challenge. They have to be so mentally switched on that it's a, that it's a completely different preparation for a game than an outfield player. But how many mistakes? Sorry, how many yeah. mistakes can you make before your drop? Because I think those mistakes are more obvious than an outfield player. Would you agree? Well, no, I don't. I don't think there's there's a, there's a number. Listen, I think we're we're all under pressure. Um, you know, I don't think there's a specific number. You want to keep those mistakes to a minimum. You mm. know, when you have the trust of your teammates and trust of your manager. And perform on a consistent basis. That's what gets you to the highest level. If you can be consistent, mistakes are going to happen. You know, sometimes they happen, whether it's technical area, whether it's something you're trying or doing the right thing, and something that doesn't work off. So, there's different kind of areas, and um, you know, obviously they get magnified, especially this day and age. But at the same time, I think it's more important that you perform as consistently as you can and, and limit those mistakes. 
got to try the fish. It's good, isn't it? Have you had it? Yeah, had it's good. I've bite. tried it. Yeah, definitely. Got to yeah. see what it tastes like. So we've been here a while now, and all I'm seeing is people eating. Yeah. Mushy peas are really good too. Yeah. No, it's good. Very nice. Dave, the cameraman, can have some afterwards, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can have the chips. Oliver Kahn also said that goalkeepers need an element of insanity, and Brad Friedel says that a great goalkeeper has to have the keys to a great mindset. That's right. Do you practice yoga? Do you practice mindfulness? Is there anything in that for you? Um, I think one of the main stuff, one of the main things for for goalkeepers definitely is is, um, is mental strength. I think you know neck up, um, neck down is probably 60-70% and, and then everything else comes below because mm. I said the mental pressure for goalkeepers is to be difficult. Yeah, some guys use yoga, some guys meditate, some guys get away. I think because of my my past, I've always been mentally strong. I was. I think life made me maybe that way, so I've never had to do anything else. And I think I have that perspective on life and, and football in general that, that that it doesn't drive me too mad when when things aren't going too well. And at the same time, I um, when things are going well, I don't get too carried away. So uh, I try and keep a pretty good you know perspective on things. Who's your closest goalkeeping friend? My closest goalkeeping friend. It's a difficult one. I'm I've been lucky to. Um, yeah, to play with many goalkeepers, good guys um, in my career. I think you know Dean Kylie was also someone who took me under his wing in Portsmouth back back in the day, and mm. someone to look up to and and I have a lot of respect for. Um, you know, I had Thomas Sorensen I played a long time with, and we were keeping touch. David James, those guys, a very good rapport with my goalkeeper coaches, whether it was from David Coles um, at my Portsmouth days, and then Andy Quay at Stoke and. Um, Christopher Lodeshawn and Gianluca Spinelli at Chelsea. Those guys, I think I have a really close relationship with them because I think if you fit their type of goalkeeper, you speak the same language and that sticks. And that's carried on out to Bournemouth here with Neil Moss and Anthony White. I think those are the guys I keep very close with and understand with. And I think it's important when you go and you have the same outlook on, on the game, then, then obviously you, you have a good relationship as well. What's your best David James story that you can tell for the camera? My best David James story? Um, yeah, I mean, I think he, he's, he's got a lot of stories, many different stories. Um, when um, he has a cup of tea, at a, he used to have a cup of tea at halftime. Okay. Waiting for him in, in the dressing room. So Nice. Everyone else was, you know, using like the, the electrolytes and, and sports drinks and he's having a cup of tea. So that was quite funny. That was sum him up. Um, but yeah, just to be honest, the, the kind of physical freak of nature that he was. He could throw it so far. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, we used to in the warm-up like practice. Mm. You know, when he used to throw out to the goalkeeper because he practiced like his he's into American football, so he was like throwing and he's like, oh touchdown and the wide receiver and so we're having a bit of banter. Past the and, halfway uh, line. Yeah. And he used to like kick the ball as he was punting it, so he'd have a bit of fun. Um what team but, yeah. was it? Yeah, he, he's got he's a Seahawks fan. Okay. Yeah, he's a Seahawks fan. Nice. Um I think he went there once on a summer trip and mm-hmm. was invited to watch training and stuff like that so Great. Yeah, yeah. The Legion of Boom. So when uh, yep. when we as the Patriots won the Super Bowl a couple years back, that oh, was um, that Patriots. was definitely mentioned to David James. So you, you're a member of the Patriots now. That's right. Pats Nation, baby. You're a Patriots fan. You're a Yankees fan. That's right. I mean, are you a Man United fan? No, no, no. no. Which Premier League club most best close close on those two teams? You've got Yankees, Patriots. Yeah, but I also have Phoenix Suns. I know, yeah, that brings it down a little bit. 
But is there a football club that you can compare those to? I mean, you've got to say United are the Yankees of, of football, right? Or is it City now? No, I think United because... The history. Yeah, the Yankees are one of the most historic franchises, so I think it would be Man United or Liverpool. Mm. Probably have the best histories in, in the English game, so... Same with the Pats. I think, obviously, the Pats more over the last 20 years. So, yeah, I think those, those two teams would... would um, that would go more towards the Man United of this world. So if David James has half-time tea, did Jaffa Cakes ever happen? Was that ever actually a thing? Yeah. Yeah? Why? Mm. In your dressing room? Yeah, that was a, was a very common thing, uh, to have Jaffa Cakes, <laughs> uh, certain cereal bars, fruit, yeah. I don't know, I think they were just kind of sort of quick mm-hmm. carbs and sugar and low, low calories, so I don't know. Uh, that, I never had them myself, but I'm not a big orange and chocolate guy, so... No? no. I mean, low calories if you have one, maybe. Yeah, so I don't know. That was just a thing, yeah. I think we've come a little bit on from that, though. It was always just oranges when I played. Yeah, orange slices, yeah. Yeah, you get the yeah, orange yeah, slices. Half-time. Yeah? yeah? What about Yugoslavia when your dad played? Did they have <laughs> any uh, half-time... I don't know. They were lucky to have water, no? That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I don't think it was Jaffa Cakes. I think, yeah, just, you know... Um, Water, juices, fruit, stuff like that. As a goalkeeper, does it sometimes feel like you're one team and then the 10 of your teammates are another? Because yeah. you're on an island almost. Yeah, I can do. Um, we have just such different different roles, you know, the preparation is different. You train a lot with your own group, with the goalkeeper group and the coach and everyone. And um, So I think, you, yeah, you form your own little group and sometimes you are a little bit separated from the team. But I think on a match day, it's really what comes together and I think everyone does does something collectively. I've just realised something. Those seagulls just came pretty close to our plate. We're outside. Yeah. You know, it's not quite spring yet, but there are seagulls around, and the fish is the fish has got to be eaten before they come. Yeah. <laughs> Better hurry up. Who's more responsible for team success, in your opinion, goal scorers or goalkeepers? Uh, that's a good question. If you had to pick one. No, my belief is that it's very much equal. You know, I don't think you can be in a team sport and no, not anyone, not one person pull their weight. You know, so I think if you're a goalkeeper, I think their importance of stopping a goal is the same as a striker scoring. I don't know how people magnify that the scoring a goal is the hardest thing to do in the world or they're the best paid players or the, the most important players. I think collectively, you know, if you don't have a good right back, it, mm. it puts the team off or a good center midfielder. So I think everyone has to play their part and most teams value that, especially in, in successful teams that everyone really has to play their part to be to, to achieve something. How do you put a striker in a bad mood? Well, obviously we're making a lot of saves. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what you do. I think that's what we that's the motivation of why we do what we do and we um, we enjoy the look on their face when, when it doesn't <laughs> go so well for them and you know that's that's like scoring a goal to us. So um, you save as many shots as possible and that will put a striker in a in a pretty bad mood, I'm sure. What about an example of a conversation that you would have with a striker, especially if one of you is having a particularly good day? Take me into the goalkeeper yeah. striker relationship. Yeah, I think strikers and the players when you're doing a shooting drill and they score a few goals and then they give it like, oh, is anyone in goal? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then uh, when they don't score, then we always tease them. You know, you want to come a little bit closer, you want to make it a little bit easier. So there's always a bit of trash talk going on. Um, I'm not a huge trash talker, but I uh, I give a little bit of banter when it needs needs to be done. Do you have a favourite save? If there was one that you could think of. Yeah. 
Um, As I get more ketchup, because I, I need think more. I was one at Stoke, actually, when we played Man United at home, and mm. um, it was a last-minute save of Wayne Rooney free kick. Right. Um, helped us win that game, and that changed the second. It was kind of a midway, just after Christmas, I think end of January. That really changed our season because we really pushed on the rest of the season to finish ninth in the league, and um, I think we were close to the drop zone at that time. So that was the first time Stoke had ever beat Man United in the league, and it was a huge occasion for everyone. and really kicked us on for the rest of the season. So that would, that that had a very huge impact on the game and a result in the club in the season. So that's probably one I would remember. But hopefully, there's a few other ones. But I let um, <laughs> I leave it to you guys to to decide. You know what you think is a well, good. Well, to save. be honest, I would say your best moment in football is the goal. Yeah, I know you've won a That's Premier right. League title. Yeah. You've made crazy saves, but yeah. you scored a goal after 13 seconds for Stoke, 91.9 meters apparently. That's how far it went. That's and fair. I know you've been modest to protect Arthur Boric, who was your opposite number there. But how did you feel inside your head when the when the ball went into the net? I think my reaction was actually very um, was very true. I I didn't really know what to do. I you know what do you do? Like you score after such a short space of time and where you go run, running around the pitch um, <laughs> you, you know you always back. I think when you think about scoring as a goalkeeper you always like visualize it being a last minute equalizer or something and then going yeah. crazy with the whole stadium but I didn't know what to do I, I scored a goal I, I would say that it means more for me to make saves it doesn't mean that much to score a goal I think obviously now you look back and even at the time it's a cool moment of course it is um, to have been only one of five goalkeepers to do it and be in the Guinness Book of World Records so um, yeah, it was a cool moment. Yeah, but who did? What did people say to you at half time? Did you get any? Yeah, back? no. I, you looked to score since. Yeah, no. The, <laughs> obviously, the fans kind of give you the whole shoot uh, <laughs> vibe when the shout when there's a bit of wind. But you know, everyone was like, "Well done." At half time, I think everyone's a little bit surprised and shocked, and mm. it's just the way the the way it went. Did you ever play darts while you're at Stoke? Famous for their darts. Yeah, we had a couple of darts nights at the club. They, they put on a couple of events with uh, a few of the professionals, a couple of the local guys. It was Phil Taylor and Adrian Lewis are well known. And Thank you. Adrian Lewis, um, you're welcome. Adrian Lewis came down, joined a couple of events with players and and, um, and a couple of professional darts players. And a lot of fans love it. So, yeah, it was some good fun nights. I played a little bit, but on all honesty, it wasn't very good. What's the hardest sport, do you think, in the world? You had to, one that you've never tried properly. That's, that's tough. I mean, I, I, when I play golf, golf is very frustrating. I think the winter, some of the winter sports, I think they, they, they right. look tough, like ski jumping or a luge and skeleton. Down a hill on a baking tray, essentially, head first. So I mean, like. Can't get, I can't understand that. I don't know how you'd ever get into that either, what that conversation would sound like. Well, I think it turns out a lot of sprinters on that okay. road, yeah. So maybe if they're not fast enough to run on normal land, they go and run on ice, so. Yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for those kind of guys. But in general, someone who follows sports closely and watches a lot of it and studies it and watches it behind the scenes, I have a huge amount of respect for any athlete out there. You know, it takes a huge, huge sacrifice, huge commitment to be an athlete, and it's not for everybody. So anyone who's um, who's made any career in any sort of sport, I, I applaud them and I have a huge amount of respect. You grew up really wanting to play football and yeah. you loved the sport as a kid. Does the business side of the sport these days ever make you question why you're doing it? Um, listen, I think there's times when you think, well, why, why am I in this? You know, I, it's, it's, it's bloody hard or it's, it's difficult to 
cope with the pressures or whatever. So yeah, I'm like, why couldn't I have just done something more normal and gone to school and studied and achieved something that way? And uh, by the same time, no, I think that the, the positives and everything outweigh the negatives. And even now, the the rewards are probably higher than ever. So I think um, I think it was a wise decision, and thankfully it worked out. Talking of later on in your career, why did you move to Chelsea? Um, yeah, it was simple really because I was 28 at the time. I spent five and a half years at Stoke. I, I, I played a lot of games and won player of the year. I played Europa League and got to a stage where I felt like I was ready for for a challenge. You know, I felt like I was ready to test myself again and re-energize myself. And you know, I was lucky that I had a couple couple of options and the Chelsea one came up and that was the biggest challenge obviously when, when Jose Mourinho calls you up and asks you to be part of his team very difficult to turn down and you know to go toe to toe with one of the best goalkeepers in the world and Thibaut Courtois was tough and um, that was part of the challenge part of the appeal for me I want to test myself against the best be in one of the world you know world class environments and on a daily basis get better and, and, and educate myself against these guys so I think from that aspect it was just a, a new challenge that I needed and wanted and you know, it was uh, it was one I was happy to take on. I'm always fascinated by these phone calls. So, did you have Mourinho's number? Did his name pop up, or was it just a number? And then, does he ever explain how he got your number? It's something I'd want to ask personally. No, I. <laughs> Jose, how did you get my number? No, it wasn't. I didn't ask too many questions. I have to say. Uh, <laughs> no, it was just an unknown, unknown number. It must have been maybe a phone, office line or something. <laughs> a, but a phone booth. Um, and what did he say to a, you? No, he just said that he um, he could potentially be looking for for a new goalkeeper this summer. I think obviously there was maybe an idea Petrček was going to leave the club, and mm. you know if that's the case, then obviously he would like me to join and hopefully make it happen. And you know that was a great phone call, and obviously we'll see how that if that if it materialized and it happened to be materialized very quick, because that was that was the end of the season, and things changed changed very quickly from there. And um, once once Petrček obviously left and that became a reality then then for me that was only one choice and one club I wanted to go to. You just said it was the ultimate challenge to compete with Courtois. You won the Premier League. What does it feel like at the top? Yeah, do you know what? It, it was it was great. Um, I had two amazing years. Um, you know, I, I was ups and ups and downs. That first year was incredibly difficult, you know, a lot of turbulence and we didn't achieve probably what we wanted to achieve and that was tough. So that, that second year I was there it was a lot of wanting to put things right and put the club where it belonged again and, and we were able to do that you know I had two amazing years 30 appearances and Champions League and Cups and different pressures and um, some good experience obviously winning the title capped it off and that's exactly one of the reasons I wanted to come there to be part of a successful team and, and lift a trophy and see what that's all about and you know I was, I was very grateful for that now, Gimme Sport last bumped into you at the O2 Arena. Yeah. You with Charlie Daniels. That's right. For the NBA game. Did Charlie leave a diehard NBA fan? Did you educate him well? One of the reasons I actually asked Charlie to come was because he, um, he has an appreciation for American sport. You know, he follows it a little bit. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, who should I ask from the teammates? And I thought he was the perfect choice. And he enjoyed it. He had a blast. It was a great night. And, um, you know, I'm sure he'll, um, he'll be back in many games in the future. Have you played out there before, soccer in America, preseason or anything? Yeah, I've played a few uh, few times, yeah, I've been around. I mean, it's, it's a great environment, actually. There's, there's a lot of love for, for, for soccer there, football. Football's growing. I think culture's growing and everyone's becoming involved. Um, 
so no, it's always a good time to go there and play in some amazing stadiums. Some of those NFL stadiums mm. in particular are incredible, and yeah, it's always a good time. You always get looked after really well. It's a it's a great place to go for preseason. That's for sure. What do football fans say to you when they find out that you love American sports? Because there is still the, the whole American perception. Why do you like that? You know? What do they? No, I think it depends where you are. You know, you might run into a fellow Pats fan and mm. be like, "Hey, man, I'm great. Well done for supporting." Or you run into a guy who doesn't support the Pats and he's like, "Oh, boo, the Pats suck," and what kind of stuff. So it depends where you are. I think you know, generally when uh, you have an opinion on sport and, and and you follow it, it goes in circles. So people people tend to um, tend to make conversation with you, whatever the case may be. So. Um, I just wait for those opportunities and have a little bit of fun with it. So Brady couldn't get his sixth ring. Mm. Where were you watching the Super Bowl this year? No, I watch it at home right. by myself. Yeah, I don't. By yourself, you like to? Yeah, watch I watch games. every Super Bowl, every playoff game by myself. I don't go. I always get invited to a couple of the events same. in London and friends, and I said, you know, listen, I um, prefer not to speak. I just mm-hmm. prefer to watch and, and hope for the best. And yeah, I really am a fan. I do want them to do well and. You know, they've always done incredibly well for many years now, but I tend to watch them by myself. So you've stayed up late day before a game? No. No? You, you'd miss... No, unfortunately, yeah. Like, especially the NBA season and stuff. Um, no, it, I don't watch many games live. Some of the NBA Sundays, and when you get a game on a decent time, I'll watch. But, you know, I don't, uh, don't compromise any, anything like that in terms of my, my preparation for games. Before we get to the speed round, there is a speed round. Okay, speed round, that sounds a bit scary. We started with Bournemouth, we'll end with Bournemouth. You said about Stoke and when you left that you didn't know what else you could achieve. What can Bournemouth achieve besides finishing top 10? What is your ultimate goal with that club? I think that's the beauty of of being here. This club has so much potential. One of the reasons that really took me to come here is the project of, of, yes, establishing this club in the league for many years to come top 10 why why couldn't we win a trophy why can't we win a cup you know I mean that would be amazing for this club to, to win a major trophy and, and play European football and challenge for that eventually I think now with the with the resources and and that you have it's a possibility for everyone you know I think the opportunities are endless and something for us that we can really sink our teeth into and push this club in a new direction Okay, speed time before we go for a run on the beach. Okay, work our fish and chips off, yeah? Exactly. How is it, by the way? Good? Yeah, very good. Yeah, good call in this place. I think the batter's really good. Yeah. Like, excellent. I haven't tried the peas. Right, as fast as you want, sir. Do you play fantasy football? Yes. Who is your goalkeeper? Nick Pope. Why? Good value for money. Would you pick yourself? No. <laughs> if you could choose one striker to never face again, who would it be? Cristiano Ronaldo. When you Netflix and chill with your wife, what is your chosen programme? Suits. <laughs> the best goal ever scored against you? Oh, God. Um, actually, that, yeah, that was um, Nani, Portugal away, a World Cup qualifying playoff. A World Cup of Euros qualifier. Just absolute smash, top bins. Um, couldn't get anywhere near. What's your pre-game meal? Spaghetti bolognese. You live on an island on your own for two weeks. You can only have one item and it's not your phone. What would it be? Does that include people or? You're on your own. On my own. Well, okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's a great holiday choice. Uh, so no electronics, yeah? Nope. What, what can I have? Uh, <laughs> I, um, it's a sign of the times. Yeah, a book. A good book. Okay. When are you happiest? When I'm at home with my family. Good answer. The wife will like that. Yeah. If you could meet one American sports athlete, who would it be? 
One, just one, yeah? Tom Brady. I knew it. I knew it was going to be number 12. <laughs> Who should be England's number one in Russia? Oh, let's put him in the spot. I, I really don't know. Nick Pope? You just said he was in yeah. your fantasy. Yeah, Nick Pope is, and he's got a good of a chance anyone. I don't know. I think a lot can happen still in two, two or three months before the World Cup. You know, we'll see if anything happens injury-wise or anything. And You're whoever. on the fence there. Yeah, I am can't literally, literally a, on the fence. Can't give me a name. No, I, I, I don't know. I don't. It's, 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 I think it's, I don't know. It's impossible. I, you know, it's, the manager will know more because he'll want a certain way of playing. And so which goalkeeper fits in, we don't know that as outsiders. So um, I don't think there's a standout choice. But, you know, I'm sure the, the manager will make decisions, stick with it and give the goalkeeper, he needs the right confidence. Okay, to try and get a name out of you then, of the retired goalkeepers all time, who do you think is the greatest? In the world? Yeah. Oliver Kahn. Good answer. How old will you be when you retire? Hopefully my 40s. Want to go to 45 like Mr. Brady? Why not? Yeah? Yeah, if he can do it, why couldn't I? <laughs> Who would win in a fight? And this is the important question. Yourself or Oliver Kahn? Myself. What would you use to bring him down? Um, my big boot. <laughs> and a quick review of the fish and chips while we're at it. Very good. Very yeah. good. Thanks for having me here. No, uh, thank you. Good choice on, on the fish and chips and the restaurant and the setting, so it couldn't be, um, couldn't be any better. Good to see you. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Azmi Begovic for his time on the podcast. Remember, you can watch the video where we had fish and chips on the South Coast at Give Me Sports Facebook channel and, of course, their YouTube. I'm on Twitter at Max underscore Whittle. Plenty of content on Give Me Sport these days. We've just finished up our NBA Finals shows. Mark Deeks and myself recapping every game of the NBA Finals. It wasn't very competitive, was it? But we had a lot of fun staying awake in the early hours and putting together those shows. We have plenty of other things coming up over the summer. I spent some time with OG Ananobi on a court at Drury Lane's Gardens in London just last week. That'll be coming up. Joe Harris of the Brooklyn Nets. We had a finals preview with him. He was breaking down some film uh, as he played for the Nets this season against the Cavaliers and Warriors. If you'd like to get into the mind of an NBA player, we talked about scouting reports and what it's like to go up against the Cavaliers and Warriors. Joe Harris also played for the Cavs. He was drafted by them when he came into the league not so long ago. Joe Harris is back in London at the end of this month, at the end of June, and we're going to be doing an on-court masterclass with him. So make sure you stay tuned to Give Me Sport. Thank you to Harry Ramsden's Fish and Chips restaurant for allowing Azmir and myself to record that project at their restaurant. I have lots of things coming up in the works for this podcast. I appreciate that has not been a consistent release of episodes in the last few months. I am working on it. I've had some technical issues. But remember, you can listen to archive shows, most of my guests, evergreen content, Peter King, Mike Breen, The Wall Deng, Adam Silver, plenty of great guests to go back on on the US Sports Podcast. If you'd like to leave a review, please head to iTunes and subscribe, leave a review and a rating on there. That'd be much appreciated. You can also hear the podcast on blogtalkradio.com for those who have a desktop and do it the old school way. And tweet me, of course. I'd love to hear from you at Max underscore Whittle. Until next time, enjoy what is now officially and exclusively baseball season. <laughs>